All right, you guys. The summer solstice is on June 21st, so y'all don't have to worry about that anymore. So it's not technically summer yet, according to that. Let me pray really quick, and we'll get right into this. Lord, we just pray that you would meet us here as we meet with you and study your word, that you would speak to us through the, the pen, I guess, the pen of Paul all these years ago, that you would speak straight to us, Lord, and that we would hear what it is that you would have us to hear, and that we would be changed to be more like you. And God, I pray that you would bless this place with your Holy Spirit's presence. In Jesus' name, amen. I realize I never greeted everybody. Good morning. If you're new here, my name is Brian. I'm the pastor. Kevin was uh, pre- uh, was praying beforehand. We prayed for him last week. He's been our youth pastor for years. Now he's serving in a more associate pastor role. He's going to have more responsibilities, but he's still going to be our youth pastor. So it's kind of exciting time to be here. But we're excited that you're here. You are coming in the middle of a series. We've been going through the book of Ephesians. And this week we're on chapter 5. And I've realized there's always this struggle when you start going through these these books that uh, you can move so quickly that you leave a lot of stuff out, but you cover a lot of ground. You know, well, at least we got we got through like this year we've gone through, uh, or like you know we went through John, and then we've gone we're going to go through Elijah, the story of an Elijah and Elisha this week, and we went through Exodus, and you can cover a lot of ground, or you can like, go really slow and like really talk about each piece. But you, and you get a lot more out of it, but then you don't get as far. Like I've heard of other churches be like, well, we've been pre- we preached on Ephesians for like a year. And as I'm going through this, I'm like, I could see how you could do that. But then, so you had to have to pick. And we ended up picking, doing about a chapter a week, which in this book is kind of a pretty, pretty uh, fast pace, meaning that there's tons of stuff to talk about every week. And you kind of got to whittle stuff out. So I think I've done a good job with that. And I understand we're in the summer attention span level. But this one can be pretty, uh, pretty heavy in one part um, because of, uh, I'm going to explain to you some of the stuff that's going to be related to this book, partly why I think you should read it. And so um, let's just get right into it. I'll just start reading and I'm going to talk through as we go uh, what we see. Because the book of Ephesians is just a little recap in case you haven't been here, or even if you have. Well, it's a recap if you have been. It's a I don't know, summary, if if you're your first time here. The book of Ephesians is broken into two big chunks. The first three chapters, it's six chapters. The first three chapters are kind of about the gospel or doctrine. They're more theological. Here's what God's like. Here's what, you know, this is what the love of God is like, all these kinds of things. And he lays that out. And then it moves into kind of more practical. Like, how do you live that out? Or the Christian duty that we see. Um, so this is in that section part. The, Kevin spoke on chapter four last last week, and he, it, Paul just like it's like a machine gun where he's like, like here's how you can live as a Christian person. So save this book, meaning Ephesians, when you have a lot of questions about, I want to be a good Christian person. This is a good pl-. if you go, I don't know where to even look. You don't even have to Google it. You could just start reading Ephesians. Reading the whole thing takes what 15 minutes plus or minus, and you can read through the whole thing. You'll, you'll probably hit something about the thing you're looking for because he's just like, and then do this, and then do this, and then do this. So we're right in the middle of that thing, and we kind of pick up where we left off last week. And this chapter is kind of funny because, um, like when Paul wrote this, it was just one long thing, and when they started printing it and copy, they put chapter numbers and breaks in here, and there's usually mindset and thought behind that. It wasn't just like, I don't know, I hit enter, I guess, and then there's another chapter. It wasn't, it's not like that. They did some, there was intentionality to it. But this one, we get to the, 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 there's kind of the first half and then the second half, but that second half is actually 
part of the first half of, ne- of chapter 6, and so it's kind of hard to talk about. We're going to have to cover some of chapter 6 today, and then we're going to have to cover some of chapter 5 next week to make them make sense. you follow what I mean? So, we'll get there when we get there. Ephesians 5, verse 1. How do we live out this Christian life? Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now that, if you go, what is this whole chapter about? That's it. So hold on to that. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Walking in the way of love. This is this whole book. This whole chapter, I mean. But among you, there must not even, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. So usually in these kind of conversations, whether we want to admit it or not, we kind of tend to, when we come to sexual immorality, impurity, or greed, the question we are sort of asking is, how much is too much? Like, what am I allowed to, when does it become bad? Maybe this is what we think, you know. At what point is it bad? Paul here is probably being rhetorical. He's like, don't even have a hint of it. Like, so if you say, well, how much is a, is a hint? He goes, if you're asking the question, you're already probably there. You see what I'm saying? I understand some of us have OCD, but you, generally speaking, he's saying you need to be headed in a different direction. Don't be going like, how close can I get to this? You know, I mean, I'd like to get as close as possible to can. He's like, you're in the wrong path. You need to be going this way, like away from that. Get away from that, you know? And he's listing off a lot of stuff that he doesn't want to see us doing as Christian people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. I don't have to bring up Facebook. You already know. For for of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That's pretty intense. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath has come on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. So I think that really, this is one of those things that like, I think at a gut level, we all know this. We all know God is holy. We all know God's calling us to live a holy life. We all know that you shouldn't lie. You shouldn't be greedy. We all know that that's bad. I mean, the plot of even like our fairy tales is human beings. We know this stuff. Kind of. Any one of us could have written this. This wasn't like, well, gosh, I don't know where that came from. You know what I mean? Like, we all know this deep inside us somewhere that, like, this isn't right. Living this way isn't right. So I don't think any of that is a shock to you. But it's definitely an intense challenge that this kind of Christian life that God is calling us to is a life of holiness, and it doesn't look like the way everybody else lives. Who said that quote that it was a, if you were, it's like a famous, Tozer type person, you know, if, if you were convicted of, or if you were standing trial for being a Christian, would, be there, would there be enough evidence to conv- for the conviction or something like that? I just messed it up. Y'all know what I'm trying to say. Is there any evidence that you're a Christian at all in your life, you know? And uh, there should be. And it shouldn't be like, well, I got to really think about it or get really metaphorical about how I shine a light, you know? <laughs> Because of this, verse eight, for you were once dark for you were once darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Live as a child of light. It's kind of like an obvious thing. 
That was before. Now this is after. Jesus is, is Jesus in your life? Yes. Then like, let's live like it. It's not rocket science. Live as the children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. We also have seen like the fruit of the Spirit in other places. And find out what pleases the Lord. I like that because it's personal. He's saying, what pleases God? Do you think about it that way? Like, God, I want to please you. It's not just like, give me the list. I'll do it. I don't want to, you know, give me the list. It's not like that. It's saying, I want to, there's an emotional, there's a relational words there. What pleases God? Find out what pleases God. Some of us never get into that spot. We're all very technical and legal and mechanical. I want to be redeemed or something, and that's fine. But it's like, you know, I don't want, the relational part is missing. You need to see that as foundational to even understanding this kind of thing. Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness. Rather, expose them in yourself, especially. He's not talking about, like, blowing people up necessarily. You know, I'm not saying that that's not there, but I'm saying, he's saying, you know that part of you that wants to hide the bad things? He's like, get away from it. You know, like, get, the, the term we like to use is accountability. Like, a hint of sexual immorality, that includes what you watch on TV. We all know that. I'm not, like, telling you something you don't know. It's like, we're watching, and he's like, ah, I probably shouldn't watch this, but whatever. You know, he's like, he's like no, like, you, you, this, is, this is not okay. It's not okay to live this way. That, that voice in your head is the Holy Spirit going, you know, I wouldn't watch this. If, if, you were, if, you were, if what you're watching on TV, you wouldn't watch if Jesus was literally sitting beside you, probably shouldn't be watching it. Again, this is not like rocket science. I kind of feel like this is basic Christian stuff. But I kind of feel like probably most of us don't do it very often. And I'm not sure why, other than we just forgot. Or, we, you know, we don't, re- we don't remember how intense this is. He just said that for these reasons, the wrath of God is coming on the world. It's big deal stuff. But this is all stuff we can do. Expose them in yourself. Like, put up barriers. Get away from this. Some of us, if you have a problem with pornography, God wants that to end in your life. He wants to set you free from that, but you need to repent from that. You need to confess that to people, and you need to get some barriers between you. Like, if it's like, my phone is where this comes from, you might not need to have a phone for a while. It's possible. It's worth it, rather than, like, destroying your life and your family and stuff, you see? Or, ex- or experiencing the wrath of God in any form. All of these are things you need to run away from. Really, these are, this is written here for our good. Rather expose them. It is shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. Like, that's intense language again. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And that's a reference to Isaiah. 15. Be very careful, then, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. And here's a core verse here as well. Remember I said walking the way of love was like the main core verse? Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So be careful how you live, but make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Be careful because the days are evil, but make the most of every opportunity. And we're going to get really into that as we go along. Therefore, do not be foolish. It's a broad word. (laughs) But understand what the Lord's will is. This goes in kind of like that knowing what pleases him, what the Lord's will is, what God wills to happen. And you can know that from reading his book. What does the Lord will to happen? Jesus longs that all will be saved. 
you know, these kinds of things. All will come to know him. So he goes into some, again, just pretty practical stuff. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God, the Father, for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So two things here. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Another kind of obvious thing is like, don't get drunk on wine. Like, if you go, what does that mean? It means don't get drunk on wine. Again, this, I don't feel like I have to. Exactly, yeah. This is not a complete prohibition on the, on the drinking of alcohol categorically, but many of us might need to live that way, and it would be worthwhile to do so, especially if you struggle in this area. Like, if you say, I can't drink even a small amount, and uh, then I'll fall into getting drunk, then you go, then you need to not do it at all. You know what I mean? That's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, don't get drunk on wine. And we're like, well, it might be slightly different for all of us. He's like, okay, then do that. The value still remains. It's not like, well, I mean, I was just a little drunk. He's like, what? again, this kid can get to like, this like, how close are we? You see what I'm saying? And I'm not going to be up here being your dad, like fill out the card, give it, you know, you've lost it. This isn't how this works. I'm just trying to tell you the truth here. God cares about this stuff, and he's put this in here for a reason. But he also says this, instead be filled with the Spirit. So there's this kind of like, I mean, we don't even get too deep into this, but the, the life of the Spirit, it's, it's an interesting, you, he could have said anything else, okay? He could have said like, don't get drunk with wine, read your Bible, or something like that, you know? He didn't say that. He said, don't get drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. I think that does draw these two things into some sort of parody, meaning the life that's filled with the Spirit is more exciting than being drunk. It's also, it's, it's, it's wild. I mean, you, you hear the terms that are all throughout the Bible about this. Is the, it's this life abundantly, all this kind of, I didn't plan this part, but you get what I'm trying to say. There is, and it, it's not saying like, well, I associate this thing with all this excitement and you want me to just be really lame. That's not really what he's saying. He's like, there's another way, and it's a better way. It's the real way that I've intended. Being filled with the Spirit is better than being drunk. I mean, whatever thing that you think of as a positive in that category, partying or whatever, you know, this is what he's trying to say. He goes, the life with the Spirit is better. It's more alive. It's more, you know, you see what I'm saying. And then it leads to these things, which is an interesting list. Psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from our heart to the Lord. This is essentially what we're doing the first half of while we're gathered here. We are together as a group singing this, a song to God. We're not up here singing to you. You're singing to God. We're just keeping us all on the same song. So it's, it's all focused. This, it'd be better if we were playing like this and singing to God, but that might seem weird. But it could work. It would actually make the... If, when you look into like the design and really, really old school church, and I'm talking about like Catholic stuff, there's a lot of walls and things. You're like, what's the deal with all this? This is what was in people's mind. They're like, we want to make sure that we know that what we're doing is we are worshiping God, and the guy that's up here just is kind of keeping us pointed in the same thing. Like, let's sing verse 1 again together. You see what I mean? And it's something we got to do together. Okay, so now we move to this second part. And I am going to do my best. Instructions for Christian Households is the title that the NIV puts over this section. And this is the part, there's like four chunks of it. 
The first two are in chapter 5, and the second two are in chapter 6. So we're going to talk about the details of chapter 6 next week and the details of chapter 5 this week, but you have to approach them both as a chunk in order to kind of get what he's doing here, okay? So <clears throat> this first one, um, he gives the intro to this whole section. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's an instruction to kind of everybody, all Christian-y people. He's like, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now I'm going to move into some examples of what that could look like. He says this, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. His body, or church his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water with, through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies." He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just, just as Christ does the church. For we, are all, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And then it moves into children and fathers, and then masters and slaves. So I'm going to go back through this and give some understanding uh, of what this means and what we're talking about here. The word he uses here, what he says, uh, head of the wife, in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, it carries it's like the source, meaning like the head of a river, and authority, meaning like a general or something like that. Um, it means bearing responsibility. And uh, we'll get into some cultural uh, aspects of this. I, I saw when I was reading about this, Tony Evans is a famous preacher. He, he was talking about that the type of responsibility that he's talking about in this headship thing is... Uh, is mostly based on responsibility, meaning like before God. Like God's going to say, I'm holding you responsible for this. And he described it as this. Uh, is God telling the woman to duck so he can punch the man? Be like, what are you doing? You know. <laughs> and so it kind of helps you understand the dynamics that he's putting up here. That there's a, there's a wife that is uh, sub submitting to, the, to the, her husband as Christ is the head of the church. But then he goes in this long paragraph about the man and what he's supposed to do. Gave himself up. It's acting like Jesus. Give yourself up for your wife. And to cleanse her. Would you, you, take, you take, your job is to take care of her, both physically and spiritually. This is this in between. It's like both. So he's saying to the husbands, you need to act like Jesus. He gets into your whole family when he talks to the, you know, but like right now we're talking about a marriage. And he says, Submit to one another. Wives, submit to your husbands as to Jesus. And then husbands, you act like Jesus to your wife. And I'm going to describe to you what that 
what that looks like. Giving of yourself, cleansing her. And then he goes into this interesting thing. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. And this is a, this is a quote from Genesis 2, and everybody would have known that. <laughs> and he's making an appeal to uh, creation. This is when God's talking about making Adam and Eve and then coming together. It's a little bit deep stuff, but what God is saying, so Paul is, what he's talking about in this area is a relationship. Marriage is a relationship. It's a legally binding, lifelong spiritual connection between a man and a woman that in a way, Paul calls it a mystery, becomes a depiction of salvation, the representation of God and the church, but it's also necessary to depict humanity, okay? So he's talking about a relationship between two people, a man and a woman who are married, and then he's but he's appealing to something deeper, which is male and female in creation of God. Not all male and females are married, okay? But an understanding of this marriage, is you ha- it sits underneath this other thing. And it's an important picture for us to see when God creates the world. That, and you read it in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and he's laying this out, that he makes a man and he makes a woman. And they need each other in lots of different ways. And in order to make more people, you need two both of them, and that union becomes what we call marriage, and out of that, there's other, there's other things, but that's, you can't depict, if I said, draw a picture of, a, of humanity or a human, you run into a weird problem, because if you just draw one, if like, it's like, here's a, here's a picture, and you're like, well, you just drew a dude, you're like, well, I'm a dude, like, well, you didn't draw, like, where's the other half? You'd be like, oh, yeah, well, and actually, this, this is not a controversial thing I'm talking about. In the 70s, and, uh, they were, this NASA was doing a couple of spacecraft that were going to go out and take pictures of planets, but then they were also just going to kind of float off into space. And they saw it as kind of a social experiment to like, well, not social. It was kind of like a, here's what we can do. We, can, uh, we should put something on this. Like, let's just imagine there's aliens somewhere that find this thing. What would, what would we be able to put on there that they would understand that would depict who we are and where we are? And they came up with some creative ways to do that. And they, they had the, put this up here. They also put these on the Voyager spacecraft. That were, so the first one is on the Pioneer, where it's like, this is where Earth is in relation to some pulsars. And then beside it, you see this picture. And it's a man and a woman. And then on the Voyager ones, they were like more sophisticated. They made a gold record that I guess they thought the aliens would be able to figure out how to play. And there are instructions on it, but again... I don't think no one ever intended anybody to find this stuff. It was more like an experiment for ourselves. Like, if we had to put 10 pictures on a record to depict all of human history and our world and everything, what would you pick? And then they had people doing this. And they weren't like raging fundamentalists. Like, Jerry Falwell wasn't involved, all right? It was like Carl Sagan, okay? And they figured, again, non-controversially, they're like, in order to depict humanity, we need to show that it requires a man and a woman together to make more people. It was just a, kind of the way it was, and it's the way it is. <laughs> and so it's helpful to see that this is what Paul is appealing to when he's going back to Genesis. And it wasn't something that we like struggled with until very recently. I mean, this is not that long ago. I mean, the Voyager thing's now floating way, way, way out in space, but that's left on there. That's the depiction that they thought this will picture who, who, blah, who humanity is. It's how we understood ourselves, and it's how God created us. He's saying... I made a man, and in the story, it's not complete, and then he makes a woman, and now it's complete, and then he's like, and that's why 
a man leaves his mother and father, and the woman leaves her mother and father, and they join together in this special bond that I'm going to call marriage between a man and a woman. That's the foundation of a family. And here's the thing. He just leaves. A lot of marriage problems come because one of them doesn't leave. Married people know what I'm talking about. It would be like, the woman left her family, but the husband didn't. And he needs to talk to mom about everything. That's not leaving, okay? He's saying that the reason he starts here is that the marriage is now the new foundational relationship that you have with any other person. And that God has made it that way. And then he's got some things to say about it. How it looks. What it looks like. They become one flesh. This is really, so all of this is deep stuff. And he says, this is a divine mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And it's something that changes you. You become one flesh with this person in some sort of special divine mysteries, what Paul calls it. Put that scripture back up, divine mysteries. Uh, uh, yeah, whatever, he'll find it. Um, and so here's the thing. So, so let me just keep going a little bit with this, and then I'm going <laughs> to address the, what I know you're all thinking. Um, men, the whole thing is framed by the beginning of this thing. Submit to one another. Um, let me go back to it. Submit to another, one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes into a marriage and he gives some instructions that seem sort of different. The funny thing about this is, um, I was reading, Craig Keener was talking about this. In my Bible, it says, wives, submit to yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. And he said, in the Greek, that verb isn't there. It, it, the Greek doesn't work the same way as, as English, so they had to put it back in there. But it leads people to draw some weird conclusions from this. What this literally reads in Greek is submit, one, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I say this clearly. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your husbands as you do to the Lord. So the type of submission he's talking about is the one another type of submission. It doesn't erase any of the other things he says, but you have to remember that the whole time. Because a lot of people have used this to do some pretty weird stuff in the past. And we don't want to be a part of that. Again, remember saying, like, how, much of, how close can I get to this versus I want to go the other way? The whole thing is written in the going the other way attitude. So if your whole thing is like, I like what we just read because I'm a dude, and it sounds like I'm in charge of everything, you're missing the whole point. But I will say this. When he's describing marriage, he gives different instructions to different groups of people. And it's interesting because he kind of summar he sums them back up at the end. And he says, husbands, love your wives. And wives, respect your husbands. That's kind of the core if you want to understand this thing. The God is, he's telling the husbands, love your wives. He gave a lot of instruction on how. And wives, respect your husbands. And I think if we polled... A lot of dudes would go, my wife respecting me, it means so much to me. Like it's some deep core divine mystery sort of level. And most of the women would say, my husband expressing his love to me is everything to me in this relationship. But the funny thing is, you go, well, yeah, but he only tells the wife to submit, right? Well, he only tells the husband to love. So I don't think that's exactly how you want to read this. But what he's saying is he's emphasizing the things that I think Men and women need more. And so let me get into this pesky word, 
we have this pesky word here, submit. And what is this all about? I'll read Craig Keener here, kind of what I just said. Some object, but submission is explicitly only for the wife. And he's like, ah, but the command to love is explicitly only for the husband in 525. Yet we understand that all Christians should love one another and that all Christians should submit to one another in verse 521. Although Paul is not trying to cover every circumstance, he offers a general principle of how we should live, looking out for one another's interests and listening to one another, loving others more than ourselves. So is Paul saying men are better than women? No, he's not. And he says this at the very end of this, these four chunks in chapter 6, 9, which we didn't get to. He has this little thing at the very tail. He's like, there's no favoritism with God. And is he saying men always get their way and women just have to deal with it? No, he's not. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you think that describes husbands just sitting back and getting everything they want all the time? I don't think that's not what he's talking about at all. And you also have to, you, if you want to apply it that way, and people have, and people do, you're going to have this other pesky word you run into. The pesky word, first pesky word is submit for the wives to the husbands. And how do we live that out? And what does that look like? And that sounds weird to our modern ears. And it's like, well, you run into another pesky word in chapter 6. And it's slaves. Sla- this is it. 6-5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. Now, that sounds really weird to us, I think. And we'll get into that next week a little bit. So I'm thinking some of you are like, what are we dealing with here? I thought this was, is this some sort of backwards book? Like, I don't get what he's talking about. And the answer is no, obviously. But I need to give you some understanding of why Paul's writing about what he's writing about and what he means in a whole. And you already have it. He said, walking the way of love. This is what he's talking about. Now I'm going to give you some detailed instructions about it. I suspect, Kevin and I were talking about this this week, the reason Paul focuses on these categories of people, or these are the kinds of categories of people and lifestyle that were around when he was there. I think if he was writing one of these to us, it wouldn't have the same stuff on it. Marriage would probably still be there, but he would define some things that might need defining for us that didn't need defining then, right? Because it was different. Marriage wasn't different, but what, what the culture did with it was different. And the idea that they're slaves at all, we're like, what? You know? But let me get into that. So what, Paul, what Paul's doing here is he's, uh, he's, making an, he's kind of making an appeal, maybe a wink, I don't know, I'm not an expert on this. There were some famous household codes. This was a kind of way that people wrote back then. Aristotle made them very famous. In Aristotle, Paul uh, seems to be pulling a lot from that, because it's like Aristotle wrote out, here's the household codes, and they're exactly the same as Paul does, where he's like, men to wives, men to kids, and men to slaves. And he gives the men instruction on how you need to rule all these people, because you're in charge of everything. So Paul literally takes that form, and he kind of gives them, all right, this is how you want to talk. I'll talk that way. It's kind of maybe, it might be because everybody talks that way, like everybody's familiar with it. You know, <laughs> I thought of some really stupid examples of like, nah, it doesn't matter. The, um, <laughs> because like, I'll throw it out there, and that'll be the only thing you remember, and it doesn't matter. The, uh, so Paul's writing the, uh, a version of these household codes that people would be familiar with, but he's adding like a Christian version to it all. And so that's the stuff that would have stuck out to everybody. Like, I'm like, going to tell you how to live. And you're like, okay, I know how this works, you know. And then all of a sudden you'd be like, wait, what, come again? What did, you, what did you just say? What? You know, like, for example, Paul's culture, the, the wives submitting to the husbands wouldn't have been a surprise. They're like, the wives were legal property of the husbands, you know. So they'd be like, yeah, duh, we know that. But then the husbands, so the husband's like, okay, yeah, fine. And then you get to the part where he's like, so husbands submit, like, you know, you love your wives giving yourself up. You'd be like, what, what am I doing? 
I can't do whatever I want? What? So they would have actually been hung up on kind of the opposite of where we get stuck because he's telling the men to give from themselves for the... And so that's the issue of jumping across cultures like this. But I want you to understand this. Uh, especially at the time he was writing this, most of the marriages, uh, the husbands were a lot older than the, the wives. So he's, he's addressing that dynamic as well. But the things he says that are universal stick around. Um, there was also the role of the Artemis cult that was in Ephesus and things they taught. Paul's making an appeal when he talks about they taught that Eve was the source of all life and that Adam came from Eve. And he might be saying here, he's like, well, no, not. And you actually see him literally saying that in Timothy where he's like, no, not that. <laughs> Adam came first. And he makes that very explicitly. We might be like, why are you doing that? It's because he's addressing the issues that these people had in this place. But the main thing I want you to see is this, more than all of that, because there is some cultural piece to this whole thing, the way he's talking about it. But the universal parts remain. You know, this marriage thing that he's talking about is a man and a woman that come together. And then there's kind of a, a mutual submitting dynamic and also a unique quality that each person brings to the table. And we can be like, okay, I'm fine with that. But then next week we run into this slavery problem and all this is in the same... Boat, And this is where I think you need to hear all of this, and this is very important, and this is where we're going to get to Corey Ten Boom. Because I think more than anything else I was saying, this is the interpretive lens you need to use to understand this. Paul's giving relational advice here, meaning all of the categories in this household code, though maybe being commonly talked about because of Aristotle and whatever the culture he's in, these are relationships. Wives to husbands, husbands to wives. Fathers to sons, or fathers to children, children to fathers, slaves to masters, masters to slaves. He's giving instructions to all these people. Not every man and woman is a husband and wife. So in some extent, when he says to wives, he's not talking to me. He's not talking to you if you're not a wife. And to some extent, if he says husbands and you're not a husband, he's not talking to you. He's talking to husbands. And so... I invite you to hear the instruction that he gives to you in this group. And this is why. Because Paul is talking, he's not talking about so much. He does get a little broad when he's talking about uh, marriages. He's talking about you and where you find yourself. And what you should do where you find yourself. And you might be saying, how in the world do you know that? And I know this because Paul has this same exact type of list and thing in several other places. And we're going to look at a couple of them. I think today I'm going to skip and just look at 1 Corinthians. But it's a type of writing he's writing. Like, for example, the Christians of this day were one-tenth of one percent of the population. So... You and I think in like cultural redefining ways, taking the culture. We even use a culture war and stuff. Or we talk about people like Martin Luther King that really changed some things. It wasn't really the world these people were living in. They were talking about what Jesus had done in a way that changes everything. But in other ways, it doesn't change everything. Meaning, you might be a slave, and then you come to know Jesus, and then that sets you free, but you're still a slave. And so, there's two kinds of ways to talk about that. You could say, okay... Well, Paul, what do you think about slavery? He talks about that in a couple other places, kind of indirectly, but, you know, you get a picture of it. But that's different than I might say to the slave person. 
Especially if I have no power or they have no power to free themselves. You see what I'm saying? It's like if you had somebody, since we talked about this, who's an alcoholic. And there's like, you might have a different conversation about alcohol as a legal thing or non-legal thing or what should be legal with alcohol, what should be allowed culturally, categorically, what's your opinion on that, versus what I might tell you to do as an individual who's really struggling with this. You see what I'm saying? There are two different ways to talk. Paul's talking in this one, almost categorically. And I know that, again, there's other examples. We'll save these for next week just for the sake of time. Colossians 3, Galatians 3. And one of these things in Galatians 3, there's another part. He says here, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we have to give Paul the credit of some continuity of thought. Because in the Colossians version, he literally says that kind of thing and then moves immediately into another instructional list that sounds very similar to this one we have. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So like, I don't know. These seem to mean different things to our ears sometimes. The key is in 1 Corinthians 7. And what you find in 1 Corinthians 7 is a much longer version of this kind of thing. And he's, he's answering specific questions. Like they've sent him some questions about marriage. And he's like, okay, let me address these. And he goes on for a long time, like kind of long. And there's even a couple parts where he's like, ah, I have instructed, this is from me, this isn't even from God, but this is what I think you should do, which is, <laughs> puts us in a weird place biblically. We're like, well, that's in the Bible now, but the Bible says that that's Paul's opinion and not God. So what, do we, what is that? You know what I mean? And so you follow what I mean there? Yeah, that's kind of a funny, you can think about that. But he, this is the key right here. Nevertheless, this is verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 7. And I'm going to read this whole chunk so you can see how he floats in and out of these types of instructions where he's framing how he's talking and then moves into different categories. And we're picking it up like midway through. He's been talking about marriage for a while. But this is the key. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them just as God has called them. This is, and now here, how do you know this applies to Ephesians? This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Now we keep going. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised, which I don't know how you would do that. But was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and, circum and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping, keeping God's command is what counts. You see how it's like people are caught up in all this, and he's like, it doesn't, no, keeping God's command is what's important. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. You mean even slavery? Well, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. There's a lot in there. We'll talk about that a little more next week. But he's like, that's not my point. My point isn't to talk about slavery. It's to talk about you and your life as a Christian person. And he's like, and if you're a slave, don't let it bother you. Because it doesn't matter anymore. And it's like easy for you to say, it is, but I'm telling you this is the truth. He's saying this about anything. And he's like, but if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to the faith, and this is why you're going to explain it. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves to human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God, 
should remain in the situation where they were when God called them. And so he's saying, like, look, you're saved. Like, don't, don't become a slave either. And there was a little, we'll get into that next week. But he, he, so he, his mind almost goes to this. Well, now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I, I give you a judgment by one that I, the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He's kind of like, I'll, I'll give you what I think, you know. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. If you're pledged to a woman, do not seek to be released. Are you f- free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you of this. So he's like, was Paul against marriage? He's like, no. It's just like the times are serious. And this is where he really gives it to you. So the first part I said, live in a believer in whatever situation you find yourself in. That's the first thing. And then this is the other place. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, and those who mourn as if they did not, and those who are happy as if they were not, and those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, which is kind of almost like a puzzle he's put together there. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed by them, meaning you're going to have to have a car and stuff, but it doesn't mean anything. For this world in its present form is passing away. So back in Ephesians 5.16, is it making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil? Brothers and sisters, this, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. The days are evil. That's where he's talking. This is where his mind is. So what he's saying to every individual person, and like I said, I think he would give us a different list. I do think he would. Because there's things that we, there's structures in our society that weren't there then, and vice versa. He's talking about, like, life. This is life, you see. And he's saying you can and will follow Jesus like the list I gave you before. Not greedy. No hint of sexual immorality. Like, you will do that and do that wherever you are. And you go, well, what about when it isn't good? What about, like, in my marriage? My marriage isn't great. Like, what? Well, sure, okay, I'm, my, I, like, my, my husband is, uh, he's a total jerk. You want me to submit to that? And <laughs> the thing is this. The answer that Paul would say is, yeah. And he's not saying do anything sinful. But he's saying you can, not because they deserve it. They don't. That's all wrong. Just like slavery is wrong. He's not commenting on whether the rightness, he's just saying what you can do is live out Christian faith wherever you are. And they don't get to decide the terms. They is everybody else. And in these relationships, it's your husband or your wife. And you will get into the fathers and sons and stuff like that. But it also goes into everywhere else. And where it goes into is as deep as it can go. Corey Tinboom has this um, quote that says, There's no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Because this can sound like pretty hopeless stuff. Are you telling the slave people to stay slaves? And he's like, no, he's saying, if you understand what God, like all the other stuff that we've read about up to this point, it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter anymore. And you're not, in, you're not looking at things the same way anymore. Like, what can I get out of this? Or like, that I have to worry about it. Like, God won't take care of me. Or that, you know, in... If you're, a, if you're a husband and you go, well, yeah, but my wife, she's like wild and crazy. He's like, I'm supposed to just love her like, like Jesus loves the church? He'd say, yeah, 
Like, if you go read Hosea. That's what this whole thing's about. It's not like he doesn't know about that. He does know about it. And it's not because she deserves it, because she's earned it and all this kind of thing. It's because you are giving from yourself something that's like you would for Jesus. And it says to do the whole thing, not because of, it says out of reverence for Christ. So out of reverence for Christ, we can live with other people, even the worst of them, in a Christian way. And it's very hard to, N.T. Wright had this quote, the call of the gospel is for the church to implement the victory of God in the world through suffering love. And I like, Miroslav Volf talks about this, this term embrace. And I like that as a term for this because most of us, yeah, sometimes it's hard when you, a lot of us probably struggle. I struggle at times. There's a scene in Star Wars where Yoda's yelling at Luke and, he's, and Empire Strikes Back and he's being like, yeah, I mean, I'm all forcing stuff. I'm going to keep an eye on this guy. He's like, his mind's always off somewhere else. It's never where he is. And when he was like, where you are, what you are doing, you know, he's always talking about like, you're always somewhere else. You know, this idea like, one day I'll be a Christian person. Well, when I get this together, then we'll pray it as a family. Or then, well, yes, one day, uh, that is not a real thing. This is the only time we have. This is why I like this embracing thing. Because it's not like all based on deserving it. It's based on a choice. That we will embrace where we are. And I mean, the extent to which I mean that, and what I think Paul means here, is all the way into really bad circumstances like slavery. He's trying to say, if you can really get this, this isn't a lie. He's not saying slavery is good, it's bad. If you can get free, get free. But my point is, you can be a Christian person even there. There's no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Justin, why don't you come on up here? The... uh, so the question becomes, you know, who are we willing to suffer for? Who are we willing to embrace? And this is where the rubber starts to meet the road. And in this story, Corey Tinboom, one thing I really like about this book is she's honest. There's a couple parts in it where, because they, they, get, they get put in a concentration camp because of what they did. Again, not a spoiler. You can see the, the fence on the cover. But I think it even says it in the summary. But the... Uh, what she encounters there stretches her faith. She's there with her sister. And she, and she keeps remarking to her sister, like, who are you? Like, what do you, you know? And I found myself, and I know it's written this way, but I was like, I'm, I'm with Corey Timboom on this. You know, there, there's a part where her sister gets really sick, and they have them digging a, a trench or something, and she can't do it anymore. And so the people, I'm sorry, the people start making fun of her and, like, calling her names and, like, all that kind of stuff. And Corey Timboom gets really mad while they're making fun of her sick sister who's just, you know, being beaten and stuff. And she says, um, she says, uh, she looks over and sees her sister laughing along with them. She's like, yeah, that is kind of what I look like. I can barely do this, you know. But she's like, well, you better let me do it because I'm at least helping, you know. You want me to dig a trench? I'm digging a trench. I'm just doing it at the level I can do it, you know. And at that response, the, the guard people start beating her. Like, we'll tell you who can dig or whatever. So Corey Timboom's like, I got a shovel. I'll kill him. You know? And I'm like, I'm right there with her. Like, I was reading the book going, 
I think I would just try to kill that. I'd be like, yeah, it's kind of like in Tombstone where he's like, yeah, your friends might get me in a raid, but you're going to be dead. You know, that's what I would think. They'd be like, you will die and they might kill me, but at least you're dead. So, and I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying this is the flesh inside of me. And she kicks up her shovel to go beat this person to death who in every way that you could think about it deserves it. Like you're beating a sick woman. Like, I, yeah, I would have beat, the, you know, and so she's like, and her sister grabs, she's like, don't do that. And it's not just because you'll get killed. It's because it's wrong. And she's like, what are you talking about? You know, and then her sister starts talking about, like, we have to pray for these people. And Corey Timmons is like, yeah, all these prisoners. Like, look how much they're suffering. She's like, we, also, we need to pray for these guards. Like, they've been, the enemy has warped their mind to hate. And Jesus needs to teach them to love. And her sister's like, maybe I'll start with the prisoners, you know. And I was right there the whole time. I'm like, this is where my mind is. But then they, they encountered this story. They get put in a barracks in a prison camp by Nazis. And she's struggling. She's like, you know, God, you're going to have to get us through this. And God keeps getting her through it. This is what I said about embracing your life. You said, like, well, she's a hero now. At this point, she wasn't a hero. Her dad had a watch shop, a clock shop in the town. Does that sound like a Christian hero to you in the way you would define it? You know, is that Mother Teresa or something? Or, I don't know, fill in the blank. Her dad has a watch shop. I'm pretty sure you got a job like that, something. You're a normal person. And then they started living out their faith. And then it started to matter a whole lot. And then the Nazis started to care about it. And then they ended up in prison. This is, this is the kind of life we could, It's not... It's radical, but it's not like for a unique handful of people. This is stuff we can all do. But it's costly. And it requires us to give love to people who don't deserve it. And that's how we start taking ground for the kingdom of God. Because if you only love people that deserve it, you're not getting anywhere. It's when you start loving the people that don't deserve it. Or I choose, I choose to sacrifice my life for my wife and my family because that's what Jesus would do. Or you choose to even support or respect your husband when he's making silly decisions sometimes or something. And again, there's a lot more to say about all this, but my point is you can choose to give people things they don't deserve. And that's how we start taking ground in the kingdom of God. But it gets really practical. Suddenly I sat up, striking my head on the cross slats above something had pinched my leg. They could put in a new prison cell or prison barracks in Ravensbrück concentration camp. All right. Fleas, I cried. Betsy, this place is swarming with them. That's her sister. We scrambled across the intervening platforms, heads low to avoid another bump, dropped down to the island, edged edge our way to the patch of light. Here and there, another one, I wailed. Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Show us, show us how. It was said so matter-of-fact, it took me a second to realize she was praying. That was her sister who said that. More and more, the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. Corey... She said, she said excitedly, he's given us the answer before we ask, he, as he always does in the Bible this morning. Where was it? Read that part again. They had a, like scraps of a Bible in the prison. I glanced down the long dim aisle to make sure no guard was in sight, then drew the Bible from its pouch. It was in First Thessalonians, I said. We, we were on our third complete reading of the New Testament since leaving the other prison. In, in the feeble light, I turned the pages. Here it is. Comfort the frightened. 
Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Seemed, seemed written expressly for Ravensbrook. She said, go on, Betsy said. That wasn't all. Oh, yes. To one another and to all. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey. That's, that's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now. Thank God for every single thing about this new barracks. I stared at her and around me at the dark, foul-aired room. It's a concentration camp. Such as, <laughs> I said, such as being assigned here together. And she's like, I bit my lip. Oh, yes, Lord Jesus. Because she was thankful for that. Such as what you're holding in your hands. She, I looked. I looked down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for all the women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Yes, said Betsy. Thank you for, for the very crowding here. Since we are packed so close that many more will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey, she prodded. Oh, all right. Thank you for the jammed, crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocated crowds. <laughs> thank you, Betsy went on serenely. For the fleas. And for the fleas? This was too much. But see, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. Give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of this place where God has put us. So we stood between the piers of bunks and give thanks for the fleas. But this time, I was sure Betsy was wrong. Your life is full of fleas. So much of our prayer is just for God to take the fleas away. God wants you to embrace your life with the fleas. And we struggle with this as a church because there's been so much prosperity gospel. This idea that, and it sneaks in. There's people that literally teach this and then everybody else gets the, the leftovers. That like, if you're following God, your life's going to be great. You'll probably be rich, maybe famous. And then you'll like have lots of money, health and wealth and all this kind of stuff. And when you run that against like what Paul says, and Paul's literally this whole section, Kevin read it last week. He started from, so I as a prisoner, he's saying that you're kind of go like, wink, I'm writing you this from prison. I'm not writing you this from my mansion so that you can buy my book and I get richer. Not that that's necessarily wrong, though it probably is. But the point is that He's making the point. He's like, I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I'm writing this from prison. I'm arrested because I stood up for this. And you could do it too. The fleas. God's calling us to embrace our life, including the fleas. So what happened with the fleas? Slight spoiler alert. But the book's full of it. She finds out later that they leave all these prayer meetings and these women get saved and people come to know the Lord and they're like, they found out only later that the, the guards would never come into that place because it had fleas. She's like, the salvation of people, some people who died like days later in a concentration camp was hung on there being fleas in her barracks. And her only mindset, just like mine, is God get rid of the fleas. You don't get to the point where you can see how God can even use the fleas. It's not to say fleas are good. This is the kind of stuff Paul's talking about. I'm not telling you that all this stuff is great. I'm saying you can endure anything, and you can pray. And if you start praising God for it, you t 
turn into being like Jesus, and then something, something miraculous happens. Then you start living out the Christian faith. And I believe if Corey Timmon was standing here today, she'd go, every single one of you can do this. Every single one. It's like, it's a challenge. It's not like lightweight, but you could do it. I'm going to pray, and they're going to sing a song. And if, if you want to pray, we have space up here for you to pray. If you want to pray in your seat, if you want to sing along, or if you need people to pray for you, we have prayer team people that will be praying. And um, things like this you have to sort with. You might need to wrestle with this a few times. You might need to uh, let it work on you. Because I bet you know what the fleas are in your life, and I bet you know how much you really wish those would go away. And the idea of thanking God for them sounds absolutely crazy, and it is, but it's the way of the cross. It's the way of Jesus. And that's part of him saying, take up your cross and follow me, is thanking him for the fleas. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to be the kind of people that thank you for even the fleas of our lives, and that we will willingly give to those. We will submit to one another out of our reverence for you, that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, that we know that you have made us free. I pray for life more abundantly to flow through each and every one of us here and that we would live out this faith in meaningful ways. In Jesus' name, amen. So come pray if you need to.